Hello and welcome to the first Pomocon political podcast. My friend Pete Spiliakos and I will be rambling about politics, the common good, the Republican Party and the conservative movement in no particular order. What's on our minds today? The meaning of Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, an all-around good guy, now an author of a book on education that's been much discussed, and seemingly the figure of principle among conservative Republicans. Pete, please introduce yourself and let's start. Hey, I'm Pete Spiliakos. I'm a columnist for the online version of First Things, and I'm also occasionally a contributor to National Review Online. So, how do you think about Senator Sass? I want to like Ben Sass. He seems like a good guy. If I had a family emergency, I'd much rather drop off my kids to him for a couple of hours to watch them than Donald Trump or most other people. I want to like him. He seems to be an erudite guy, to be a hardworking guy, but most of his discussion seems to be off point. And when it comes to the weaknesses of the Republican Party and American conservatism, these are largely policy weaknesses, not in the sense of they don't have the right subchapter on this piece of legislation. It's they don't have policies that people want to vote for. And the way that Republicans have responded, especially the establishment Republicans post George W. Bush, is to find somebody with a pretty face and a nice resume and then hope that the public won't notice that their policies aren't all that popular. That they'll go forward based on their charisma and based on their handsomeness, kind of, or some kind of identity politics. You see that in a photograph every once in a while you see on the internet. It's Trey Gowdy, who's a white congressman from South Carolina. You have Nikki Haley, who's an Indian American governor. You have Tim Scott, who's an African American senator. And you have Marco Rubio. And it's, we could have had this. That's true. We could have had it. Problem is the public didn't want it. And the thing is, we could have had this multicultural conservatism. And that's true. We could have had this conservatism where everybody looked different and everybody had different genitalia and everybody pretty much thought the same thing. But the problem is the public didn't want it. It's a mirror image of what conservatives criticize liberals for thinking about college campuses. There are liberals' idea of a college campus is everybody from every country, of every shade, of every gender, all saying the same things. Well, conservatives are now bringing this into the political world, and then they're wondering why they're being rejected. And the reason why they're being rejected is because they offered nothing that's both distinctive and popular. Ben Sass has been senator for a while now. He talks a lot about the Constitution. I like the Constitution. But when people are talking about health care, the Constitution, 90% of the time, is a tangential issue, unless you're Ron Paul and you think all federal government work in the healthcare sector is unconstitutional. So what happens is it's an exercise in point missing. It's an exercise in deflection. What about health care? Oh, that's very important. We should have very important civil debates. Did I tell you how much I love the Constitution? Yes, Ben, you love the Constitution. We know you love the Constitution. <laughs> Someday I expect to hear a report on the radio that the Constitution was found bound and gagged in Ben Sass's basement. Other thing is, stop it. Could you please talk about the issues at hand? And what will people think about when you talk about taxes or entitlements or immigration or health care? And then win those debates against liberals or just try winning those debates against Donald Trump. Matthew Walter had a very bitterly critical column against Ben Sass. And I would say I would agree with maybe 70% of it. I think he did go a little bit too far. But I do think that in a lot of ways, Ben Sass really does act as a tone policeman for Donald Trump. Now, that's important. I think norms of civility are very important. But you're not going to beat Donald Trump, and you shouldn't expect to beat Donald Trump just based on calling him out for his civility. You have to beat him based on ideas. You should also probably re-examine if maybe part of the reason why you're losing to him is maybe you're really wrong in some important ways, too. Yeah, so we've got a couple of issues with what it means to be a politician here. 
I know the Matthew Walter column you mentioned over at The Week, right? Yeah. The guy is harsh, but he's a really smart guy, and it's a good place to go to read smart criticism of conservatives from friends. And that's the sort of thing we're trying to do here as well. What does it mean to be a politician? One big problem you have on the Republican side is a desire for gravitas, for respectability, for politicians that look like what you want your frontman to look like when you have something to hide, actually. There is something weird about how much we want people on our side to be clean, good-looking, responsible, reasonable people. One caricature of this was the 2016 election, which was a college brochure. You're right about that. You wanted a variety of ideas. There wasn't going to be much of that, especially not as the primaries got on and men and ideas were matched as they must be in American politics. And then they had to go into their tournament game, which is what the primaries supposedly are. But turned out there were way too many men and women and not enough ideas. And that's really strange. That's the first thing that shows that to some extent we're just looking for front men as a political organization. Long it's been the illusion of the conservative base, whatever the Republican Party more broadly has as a problem. But the conservatives have long lived with the delusion that what they have is a PR problem. That it's a messaging issue. That there's an America out there just looking to grab with both hands and feet onto the conservative ideas. The only problem is get a messenger that locks out. Hence this looking for ethnic diversity, sexual diversity, for young, pretty, clean-cut but pretty, not superficial-looking but attractive, messengers, as though that's what really matters. And at the same time, this prepared all these shocks of the last couple of years when senator after senator, like the Sunshine Senator from Florida, or Ted Cruz, who's to some extent the senator from the Apocalypse, these people are supposed to impersonate principle and end up looking like caricatures. They don't seem to have much of the party behind them, or to be very interested in that either. To some extent, they know that whatever their constituency is, they evolve in the visual internet constituency, and that's where they have to make their mark, attract attention, and keep the spotlight on them. These are weirdly media-savvy guys who don't seem to know their electorate. This has been a catastrophe at the level of presidential elections, but these kinds of senators who are all about the glamour are not the only problem, of course. We've also seen all these governors who are supposed to bring a reputation with them of success. This is not especially a conservative problem, this is specifically the Republican problem. An obsession with competence, narrowly defined, turned into a superstition. Governors, for that reason, are fetishized. They've got some things done, and it's not quite clear what their successes are or how important they are, but you should give credit to all these successful governors because there are states where people are better off for them, and thank God. But what does that have to do with the national arena? What does that have to do with talking to the national electorate? There's no state in the union that's a good match for the union because there's nothing at the state level that deals with the federal problem. And I think that this comes to one thing you mentioned about Ben Sass, like the senators have these good looks, good principles, they're shining, resplendent creatures. With the governors you see the other problem, that there's a certain desire to avoid the problems of running the federal government for 330 million Americans. With governors, you can kind of wish that away. You can look at their successes and think, you know what, this guy will be a good president because the state and the union are sort of the same thing, or at any rate, good enough. 
as though the massive quarrels that happen in national politics aren't unique, as though you don't have to persuade a unique electorate that you're at the minimum level responsible and can be trusted with what is bound to be catastrophic stuff politically. Nobody's confident about the future of the federal government. Nobody's willing to tell even pollsters that they're hopeful that their kids are going to have it better off in the next generation. People are already fearful. And so you get these two kinds of illusions, the illusions of power or the good with governors who turn out to be not really good politicians, not really good at connecting with an electorate, and not really good at making it out of their state. And on the other hand, the illusion of beauty, of respectability, morality, nobility, and of course the constitution. Everybody's got to love the constitution with the senators. And you have these varieties of illusions about what a politician should be in order to make the presidency. So I've been thinking about this a lot as well, and I'm glad to have a chance to talk to you about it. How much of this do you think adds up? Yeah, the fantasy of a lot of establishment Republicans is that you get a Republican governor who built a majority coalition within a state, preferably a swing state, and then they replicate that majority coalition within the country. And that's a superficially attractive idea. The problem that they don't grapple with, and this problem killed both Rick Perry and Scott Walker, was that the coalition building at state level politics and the coalition building at federal level politics are very different. They're different skills. One's basketball, the other one's baseball. Michael Jordan was a great basketball player, but he couldn't hit a curveball. You can be a great athlete and you can be great at two sports, but they're two different sports and you have to learn the skills at each sport. Now, one of the major reasons why they're different is that at state level economic politics, the main economic struggle is property tax payers who are the majority and costs to state and municipal employees, especially pensions, who are a minority. There is a natural center-right local chamber of commerce majority within the states, including liberal states, for this version of conservative politics. The problem at the federal level is the main matters of controversy are the entitlements, Medicare, Social Security, and the main form of taxation is income taxes. Now, the spending cuts that they are used to enacting at the state level, you can get majority support for because the majority will never be impacted by them. At the federal level, those cuts will impact the majority. Now, that doesn't mean you won't necessarily be able to enact them, though you're going to have to sweeten it with other policies. But politicians don't seem to understand that what works at the state level, because they're on the side of the majority, doesn't work at the federal level because suddenly the politics flip and they're on the side of the minority. This isn't even getting into the politics of immigration, which are also very different at the state level and at the federal level. This also gets to a separate problem. I think Charles Murray was the first to get to it on a broad level, but it affects the Republican Party in very specific ways. Charles Murray basically said that the educated have more social capital than those who are less educated. People with bachelor's degrees are much more connected than people without bachelor's degrees. What that means is that when Republican politicians are in the process of campaigning, the people that they will naturally surround themselves with, the people who sponsor them, their donors, the people who will be activists, will be people who have relatively thick social networks. Now, some of those people will be white evangelical Christian. Those social networks are unevenly distributed across the country. But the local chamber of commerce, and I don't mean like the national chamber of commerce, I mean just the local realtors, the local hoteliers, the local construction contractors. These are the people who up-and-coming Republican candidates naturally meet, and they imbibe that worldview. And they project the worldview of these particular people onto the broader Republican coalition. And on many important issues, that's just not 
true. And they get caught up short when they realize that what they think of as being the consensus Republican position is not at all the consensus Republican position, whether it's on cutting taxes for high earners, whether it's cutting entitlement spending, whether it's increasing immigration. I think one of the most telling moments of the 2016 campaign happened years before the 2016 campaign, where Scott Walker, in an interview with a small town Wisconsin newspaper, basically mocked the idea of any kind of immigration enforcement and basically asked immigration increase. Anybody who wants to come here can come here. And he wasn't lying and he wasn't a shill. One of the most pernicious Trumpist fantasies is that there's some kind of big conspiracy. No, Scott Walker was not bought. Scott Walker was a true believer. And Scott Walker sincerely believed that what he was saying was popular, even though upwards of 76% of Americans, not Republicans, Americans, including the vast majority of foreign-born Americans, think that's crazy. So what happens is their particular experiences don't prepare them for large segments of public opinion, both general public opinion and public opinion within their own party. And when they're met with evidence of the unpopularity of their beliefs, their first response is, we've been betrayed. People aren't real conservatives. They've wanted real conservatives. We're real conservatives. We're the people who want this stuff. And why are they not listening to us? Well, because you had a false opinion of what they believed. And their second after that, after we've been betrayed, is the people are swine. Well, if they don't believe what we believe, then obviously they're ignorant. Obviously they're racist. Obviously they're stupid. Uh, They should defer to the people like us who are better and who love the Constitution. And you almost can't design it better strategy to drive them into the arms of a demagogue. Yeah, that's true. There's a massive problem with recognizing that you just might be oligarchic in your instincts, that they have been flattered by success and by the expectations of success of certain classes. And there's nothing wrong with being successful in America. I think everybody wants to be successful, but not everybody is as successful and not everybody is worried about the same things. And when you can't get it in your head that there are lots of people worried about The massive issues were immigration, at least understood as an economic worry, as a jobs problem, and there's a kind of commitment on the part of the upper classes. What is their relationship to the lower classes? A position on immigration that says fling the doors open or is broadly understood and I think correctly understood is saying that the lower classes don't really matter. We're not going to worry about these people. Not because immigration itself is the solution or the problem with jobs for the lower classes but because it's about the democratic attitude of the upper classes. And uh, immigration is a certain replacement for democracy and for citizenship here. It's a proxy. It means, of course, we're doing well, but we love the people. Indeed, the people of the world, they can all come here for some approximation to that. That's one way for the upper classes to condescend to the lower classes. And it's suicidal in the Republican Party. I don't know if it's going to work in the Democratic Party, but in the Republican Party it's proved to be suicidal. That you have got to have an attitude that understands that there are people now in America who are Americans and they have to be helped in some ways. There has got to be some kind of an understanding during a primary and a general election where the people get a sense of what to expect from politicians and practically what the social contract will mean. They don't know what the details of policy will be, but they want to understand that policy will be going in a certain direction. And that's what the common good is going to be for the foreseeable future, that is, four to eight years, what you can expect to get out of a prison. And what the electorate wanted on immigration was certain restrictions, at least on low-skilled immigrants, at least as part of a broader concern to help Americans with fewer or less marketable skills to do better than they have in the 
last 10 or 20 years, and both as a policy and as a signal for a broader political attitude about the relationship between the well-off and the people who are not at all well-off or are badly off. This was a very big deal and pretty much every candidate actually failed this basic test. As three questions go, this is almost transparent. The question about immigration is, are you an oligarch or do you stand for all-American citizenship? And a bunch of Republicans who are all respectable constitutionalists, in fact, seem to say at every turn, yeah, we're oligarchs. Hence the contempt that you noted whenever they're confronted with the fact that this is not working out, that this isn't a popular idea, that there's no consensus for it. And at this point, it is the case that a kind of wounded pride of the Republican or the conservative is being trotted out to ignore basic statements like uh, Abraham Lincoln saying that in America, public sentiment is the strongest thing. It will make the laws applicable or inapplicable. With it, things succeed. Against it, nothing succeeds. That's again a matter of will the governing classes show any respect to the citizens who elect them and have to support them. You have got to give the citizens something they can live with. And it's proving, I think, that the Republican Party isn't interested in that. That so far as the Congress is also a public relations machine, however abysmal, the Republican majority isn't interested in saying, okay, now we have to deal with our electorate, let's figure out what makes these people crazy, what makes them excited, and where can we live with it in policy terms on the issue of immigration, for example, seen as an economic concern for the lower classes. Nothing. And then there's the other big issue, and I want to get your thoughts on this too. The other big issue that makes up this divide of are you an oligarch, are you a democrat, are you all American, or are you just American for the right kind of Americans in the well-to-do classes? And that's the healthcare question. Another massive division between the elected Republicans and the electorate of the Republican Party. Well, I would, uh, when talking about oligarchy within the Republican Party, there's a lot of confusion and there's some paranoia. Whenever I look at the comments and I hear about, you know, when they talk about the rich, they always talk about Silicon Valley or they talk about that big billionaire meeting in Davos. And I don't think the average Republican is a servant of Davos or thinks of themselves in those terms. I'm sure they would love Silicon Valley money, but if they had to choose between Silicon Valley money and the voters, they would pick the voters and they would demonize Silicon Valley if they thought that was in their interests. I think when we think of class politics among Republicans, it's more important to look at local small business because there's a mythology within the populist right that big business is bad small business is good and i think it's we should stop talking in terms of good and bad big business small business the union they're all interest groups and the republicans for a long time in their rhetoric stopped treating small business and private sector elected professionals as an interest group they think the interests of these groups are the public interest period the end and anything else is some combination of treason or error and I think that explains a lot of the Republican Party's policies. Because when you look at on the element of argument, a lot of times the arguments point in opposite directions. You'll have a Republican politician say, we need to cut Social Security and Medicare because we're broke. Fair enough. The deficits are projected to be huge. But the next day, they'll turn around and say, we need to cut taxes on high earners because high earners pay most of the tax, the income taxes anyway, and they're too burdened. Well, what is it? If we're broke, you don't cut the revenue source that you have. 
if you're not broke, why are you making people who work very difficult jobs? Why do you want a roofer to retire at 69 instead of 67? Now, his arguments, they're incoherent. But in terms of advancing the interest of an economic interest group, they are coherent. And I think Republicans don't think of them as an interest group. But I think people outside those groups look at the Republicans and saying, all right, you're advancing their interests contrary to my interests. And they're right. Elected Republicans can't see their right because they can't conceive of an American interest that in any way diverges from what their local chamber of commerce tells them. But the people outside who are looking or listening skeptically know what the Republicans are doing. Yeah, so understanding these different interests is very important precisely because they're both quite broad. It's just that at the federal level, you get a sense of where the majority of Americans are on healthcare. Most Americans will not put up with cuts to the welfare healthcare entitlement state. If there's going to be cuts on that, the majority is going to need reassurances that are dead serious. I'm not even sure what they would have to be. It seems a very difficult question, but that was one big difference between Trump, however demagogic he was, and so many of the other Republicans, and the respectable Republicanism of Romney Ryan. Trump was not going to cut the welfare healthcare entitlement state. Obamacare had to be destroyed for both ideological reasons and supposedly reasons of policy, and that may be, but it was not going to be either some kind of magical attempt to go back in time, before it started being implemented one million regulations at a time, which cannot be rolled back, literally. But also, it was not going to be replaced by something that left Americans even worse off in terms of coverage, at least for things like catastrophic care. And one sign of democracy in America is, are you afraid that some catastrophic medical event is going to bankrupt you? And that doesn't seem to be something that the Republican Party is concerned with. Well, I think that the Republican Party, both at the popular and the elite level, has been trying really hard not to think about health care for a really long time. Because both at the rank and file level and the elite level, they understand that there's a split within the party between people who are comfortable with the status quo and people who would prefer a more libertarian, smaller government, more your on your own approach to health care. And the way they managed this was in a defense of the status quo as it was, because health care reform, liberal health care reform, would move health care in a direction that neither Republican faction liked. So what they did was they simply played defense. Well, now the thing that they were defending is doesn't exist anymore, which means that there's no consensus within the party. But it also means you have a large number of people, both at the popular level and at the elite level, who are not comfortable talking about, thinking about, or understanding this. The result is when a bunch of Republicans meet in a room to try to hammer out a new healthcare plan, they don't know the policy, they don't know the politics, it's a big GMS, they try to get it across in the form of legislative tactics, and they don't know what it's going to do, they just want to pass a law for the sake of passing a law. Obamacare, what became Obamacare, was so it was a 16-year process of policy development after Hillary Clinton's health care plan failed. The Republicans, as far as I can tell, aren't even on day one of that level of policy development or investment. So I don't know. I don't know where it goes, but I. On the politics of the entitlements, especially the old age entitlements, I think this is purely speculative. I think you will eventually be able to come up with a plan where it tells people, okay, you're going to have to work longer. You can't retire at 67. You might have to retire at 68 or 69 or 70, but you'll have more secure life during your working years. In other words, if at 50 you get laid off and you get a lower paying job, there will be a larger earned income tax credit without your consumption. If you have a job that doesn't have benefits, you will get catastrophic health care plus pre-funded health savings accounts in order so that you'll have some kind of security for health care and will reform the system to bring down costs. 
You can do that. I think that can probably be a winner. But what I can guarantee is not a winner is to tell people you're going to have to work longer. We're going to cut Medicare too. We're going to cut taxes on your boss and we can't afford to spend money on you. That's a loser. But it's not just a loser. It deserves to be a loser because it's taking the priorities of one particular interest group and it's treating them like the national interest. Yeah, it seems like we're in this shocking situation where the GOP is electorally stronger than it has been since inception in terms of offices and types of offices won throughout the land in this cascading set of elections starting in 2010. The GOP has run of the country now, but in the important sense, the GOP is not a party. It is not a party, first of all, because as you put it, on the most divisive, most thought-out question of the last 10 years, healthcare, it doesn't even have the question that it could build a consensus around or the series of questions that could hammer out compromises tentatively en route to legislation. These are just not part of the political thought of the Republicans. And so that's not a real party then. And then there's this other matter. To be a party, you have to be that part of America that proposes a solution that would work for the whole of America. Now, you're a party, you're just a party in as much as you have a partial hold on the electorate and a particular view of things certain policy proposals that imply principles. But those principles supposedly could apply to everybody. They wouldn't be strictly oligarchic. They would be applicable and good in a broad sense for America and give everybody a future, including with their disagreements. To be a party doesn't mean that everybody is going to agree. Everybody is going to agree in a limited sense on a few things to move along in the right way. The disagreements are going to be preserved and hashed out, of course, a couple of years down the road all over again. That's how politics works. No agreement really lasts that long. But you do have to have a sense of what you have to offer the nation as a nation. And there, again and again, you see this kind of crazy stand for oligarchy that has taken the shape of principle. We don't need to talk to more people, to different people, to people who disagree with us, because we've got a principle that should work everywhere for everyone, even if people disagree. And Republicans want to say, and conservatives too, this is a specifically conservative problem, they want to say, well, we can't deal with the problems of the federal government because it's going bankrupt. It is an insolvable problem. It's the liberals who've done it. The conservative story here is that for a hundred years, the Democrats, the liberals, the progressives have been creating a welfare healthcare entitlement state that lies to the people, gives the people bad habits. The people keep voting for it because it's such a good lie, such a sugar high, and then it's going to crash. But of course, with that kind of attitude, you shouldn't be in government. If you think that this is a train headed off a cliff and that it's been coming and building steam for a hundred years of progress that turns out to be a catastrophe, a horror, well, that's not politics and you shouldn't be in government with that kind of attitude. And it seems like this is maybe the biggest stumbling block. You'd have to take responsibility for the federal government. And that would mean for Republicans to ask themselves, what if the people don't trust them with healthcare? What if the people think that put an R after somebody's name in a conversation and all of a sudden there's no majority support for anything that's going to come out of that guy's mouth because there's been no work to earn trust and to build coalitions to say that, yeah, Republicans are going to take responsibility for the federal government and they're going to deal with this massive problem. That would mean accepting that in certain ways it's legitimate that in America in 2017 you cannot go back to some previous century version of politics. 
you cannot wish away either the massive debt, which is real, or the massive and sort of unsustainable welfare healthcare entitlement state, which is also real. But the question is, what do you do with these things to make it work? If you don't have ideas about what's going to make it work now and in the near future, then you don't have anything to offer as a party to the whole of the nation. And I think that these kinds of broader questions that are not policy specific are important to understand what a party is and what it stands for, how it looks at its electorate, at the nation and the future of the nation. But it's not about looking respectable or loving the constitution. It's uh, about taking responsibility for the public debates, for the public questions. And now it would be the healthcare debate. That seems to be the crushing question. Now, at a deep level, the way I think about it is this. America had a mid-century compact, a social contract, an agreement between the successful and everybody who wasn't that successful, and everybody would play along for two reasons. There would be two things in common that would give a future to America, healthcare and education. And since the 60s, it has proven that higher education has lost its prestige in America. And now there are polls that suggest that maybe the Republican electorate is turning against the prestige and the idea of higher education. And you do find more and more respectable, intelligent people arguing that higher education is a scam. And then, of course, you have Sunshine Senator Marco Rubio telling you that we need welders, not philosophers, as if this is a big issue in America. Ah, that kind of populism is not even real. But education has become a massive class divide in America. Like you were saying, it is the case that people who have gone through four-year colleges and have a degree have networks and they have a kind of future and they have economic advantages. Education separates America. And if we're going to go to Charles Murray, he's going to tell us, well, education functions in a massive way in America as a class divide. It helps people find jobs, move into neighborhoods, find spouses. Assortative mating is threatening to turn the nation into two different nations separated by IQ. This would be the starkest statement of the Charles Murray thesis. And that threatens to leave the majority in the dust. And there seem to be people who think this is inevitable, at least on the libertarian side, like Tyler Cohen. Think that there's not going to be a common good in America anymore because there's not going to be a commons in America anymore. There's not going to be a middle class, in short. That seems to be where partisan politics is crumbling. It's not clear to me that people in the Republican Party believe there is a future for the middle classes and that they have some kind of understandable, workable, practical cohesion so that a certain agreement on healthcare and education could move the nation forward more or less together. Education has functioned in the last two generations as a class separation, and that leaves only one thing that could possibly tell Americans, you know, you're in it together. It's not just good for some and not for the rest. You're in it together, and that would be healthcare. And the Republicans are trying hard to get on the wrong side of that. There's possibly some points to be scored with anti-higher education populism, debatable, but there's nothing to be won by anti-populism on healthcare. And I think it is the case that Republicans don't understand where their party stands to the nation on this matter, or that healthcare is what's left of the social contract. That's where people desperately look for some signs that the government is working for a common good. That people who are scared of what the medical catastrophe is going to do to them, or about what medical bills add up to, that they're going to be taken care of in some reasonable way when they feel very vulnerable, small parts of a massive system that is not at all accountable or transparent or predictable. I would add that there's not a Republican majority in the country. There's more, as Ross Douthat said, there's an anti-democratic majority within the country. There's an anti-left plurality within the country that barely exists. 
the left could transform itself in ways where it would become a majority. A large segment of them don't seem to want to, but you know, Bernie Sanders wants that. But I think that one of the best explanations of the situation of the Republican Party now is in the position of the Democrats in 1976. Now, after the 1976 election, they had huge majorities in Congress. They had the presidency. They had huge majorities in the state legislatures and at the municipal level. But these were anti-Republican majorities. The things that had held the Democratic Party together had weakened. They couldn't pass legislation because they no longer agreed on anything except we're all Democrats. And then a few years later, they weren't even all Democrats. The Republican Party has largely been held together by a combination of the 1980 Ronald Reagan platform and Ronald Reagan nostalgia. Well, the 1980 platform is well and truly obsolete. Tax on high earners are no longer 70%. Across the board, income tax cuts won't impact most people anymore. You can't win by running that old playbook. And Ronald Reagan has been not president long enough that the bonds of nostalgia can no longer hold people together who have substantive disagreements on issues like health care or entitlements or immigration. And the Republican political class doesn't know how to deal with it because to a large extent, they're alienated from many of their own voters on issues and the things that could rally the party together won't rally that party anymore. And among the allegedly idealistic Republicans, you have a corrupt and narrow version of Kempism. In 1980, Jack Kemp was a working class Republican. I'm going to cut your taxes because an across the board income tax would also cut your taxes. And secondarily, there'll be economic growth and you'll do well too. Well, in the 2017 version, we're going to cut your boss's taxes and we're going to cut your health care and then the economic growth will help you too. And most people look at that and go, wait a minute, you're not... And the response is a over-promising nationalism by Donald Trump, whereas I'm going to cut taxes on high earners, and I'm going to cut taxes on you, and I'm going to increase the defense budget, and I'm not going to cut entitlement spending. Everything for everybody, which is, of course, completely undeliverable. Now, your elite Republican will look at and go, Donald Trump is lying. Okay, well, Donald Trump is lying. But he at least he's recognizing that the vast majority of the country actually exists and cannot just be taken in by these PR buses. And it feels like the elite Republicans, the articulate Republicans, the ones with Ivy League degrees think that their problem is, like you say, finding the right PR hustle. Paul Ryan, he says, I don't think people really care about what the distributional impact of tax policy is. I don't think people care about whether they get a tax cut or somebody else gets a tax cut. They only care about whether the pie grows. That's crazy. That is insane. At that point, you wonder this person should be locked up. He's a fanatic, and yet he's a Speaker of the House. How do you deal with somebody who's that completely divorced from reality? At least Donald Trump knows when he's lying. Yep, that's a very good point that we have come into this catastrophe not because people are unprincipled. The corruption accusation, the self-seeking accusation is the most comfortable and pleasant one in American politics, but it's not true. Paul Ryan is a true blue believer. He is an apostle of Jack Kemp, and he doesn't understand how much things have changed or what the requirements of politics are for a party. You have got to deal with your electorate. It doesn't matter what you think about them. It matters that you learn from these people because they'll have to live with all the stuff that you're thinking about. And there's no version of the Speaker Ryan agenda that would survive contact with the electorate. It deserves to lose, and you'd hope that such a soft-spoken, reasonable, again, handsome, respectable, responsible guy, married with kids, all the moral virtues, you'd expect that he would care enough to figure out that. A lot of Americans in this party are mind-boggled just hearing this stuff. Apparently, it cannot be done. Just as much as the Democrats have an old politician problem, Republicans have a young politician problem. 
the weird fanatics of the Republican Party seem to be in their 40s. <laughs> it would seem like these people have a long shelf life, but they're actually living in a different times. It somehow has not dawned on them yet that this entire age of politics is over, that they're not going to be able to sell a Jack M version of the Reagan years or any other version of the Reagan years. It's not going to happen. Bush versions of the Reagan years aren't going to work anymore either. People believe in them way more than you would think if they had uh, the, the kind of self-interest required for corruption. Then they would be more thoughtful and they would have their nose to the wind a bit more. Not these people. They're part of a way of thinking about politics that doesn't seem to even be able to ask these kinds of questions. Which part of the party disagrees with you? Where is the majority? Which way are these people leaning? What are their concerns? And it seems like you have to send them all to conman school because conmen have to learn their marks. And now our politicians think that it's a thing of pride not to learn from your electorate, not to learn about your electorate either. That's very dangerous. And you're right that this might be a 70s Democrats problem where winning elections is what destroys a party because it turns out it's not a real party. And you could fake being a party in opposition, but when you're confronted with government and all the pressure and the responsibilities are on you, whether you're willing and able to shoulder them or not, then the rubber meets the road. And so far, people keep blaming Trump. And I think to a large extent it's because they don't want to face the political problem. The real problem here is the congressional party, not the president. I don't think there's any reason to doubt Trump would have signed any number of laws on healthcare and tax reform and whatever that would have come his way. But where are they? Yeah, I think that what's really important when you think about Trump is that Trump and Steve Bannon are not diseases. Trump and Steve Bannon are symptoms of a disease. They're a symptom of a party whose alleged beliefs do not carry conviction, whose elites have abdicated their own authority. And that is why Steve Bannon is trolling the country for dirtbags to challenge sitting Republican senators. And some of them might win. And that's because the public is that disgusted with these Republicans. Now, you're right. The thing is, every once in a while, you'll hear about a Republican senator who's being criticized, and they'll say, well, he supports Trump's agenda 90%. Well, that's exactly backwards. Trump supports that Republican's agenda 90%, because on most issues, there is no Trump agenda. Trump ran on themes, but he had very few developed policies, and he just basically supports whatever Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan tell him to support, unless it contradicts one of his major campaign promises, or maybe even if it does sometimes. So what happens is the Republicans end up having a set of policies that people don't want, and then when it fails, they opportunistically say, well, Trump didn't sell it to the country. Well, that's true. Trump didn't sell it to the country. But then again, no Republican presidential candidate could sell this because it wasn't what the country wanted. When we look at the problems of the Republican Party, I think you could look back to the autopsy that the Republican National Committee produced in 2013. The theme of the autopsy was that the Republicans' economic agenda was relatively unpopular, but it was the party's social and immigration agenda that was dragging it down. Now, it wasn't so much that this analysis was wrong. It's that this analysis was wrong in a way that was transparently cynical. In other words, even a layman could look at the exit poll from the 2012 presidential election. You could compare what the public's response was in economic issues, and it would falsify the central thesis of the autopsy. And if I know it, just by looking at the opinion poll, the people writing the autopsy know it. And what they were doing was they were transparently lying to their own constituents. The constituents knew they were lying. But even more than that, if you're going to be the national Republican leadership of the party, especially for a bureaucratic organization like the Republican National Committee, your authority derives from acting on the party's factions. When you openly and dishonestly side with one of the party's factions, especially the minority of the party, you abdicate that authority. 
who no longer have the moral authority to say, listen, I'm working for us. Because you're obviously not working for us, you're working for them. And at that point, when they're like, why did the public turn on us? Well, buddy, you turned on the public first. And I think this actually ties back to Paul Ryan when he says, I don't think people care about the distributional impact of tax cuts. What the Republican governing class has is a hideously exaggerated sense of the power of rhetoric. That if you say something the right way, it'll work out. There's one scene in the TV show Breaking Bad where Walter White says, if I can just find the right words in the right order, I can make people understand. And the problem that they have is that people do understand and they have rejected. And all this energy is going to how can we fool people? How can we hustle? They don't think of it as fooling as hustling. They think of it as tricking people into believing things that they wish weren't true. But it all comes back to telling people that they should stop believing what they know so that a Republican Party can enact policies that the public does not want. Yeah, and there's many names for that, but politics is not exactly it, and certainly not politics in a representative regime with elections and institutions that demand and need popular consent in so many different ways, not just the vote. This is the problem we're facing, trying to attract attention. The party is threatening to turn into some oligarchy that will inevitably look conspiratorial and evil, when in fact it's blind and unable to rid itself of its blindness when it comes to its own electorate. We are now in the situation where a guy who doesn't really do anything, like Donald Trump, seems to know more about where the people in America are than the people who've been in politics for decades. None of these people are new faces, but they are all somehow blind to the country they're supposedly representing and governing. Well, I would say one thing. If you look at the Trump rallies, and the Atlantic Monthly did a story on it, he got huge rallies. But the people who went to these rallies were people who had relatively weak, narrow, or non-existent social networks. Now, these people weren't pathetic, isolated losers, but these were people who weren't not churchgoers. They were people who weren't generally not business owners. I think I would call them upper working class or lower professional class. They were wage earners who earned a really good wage. They were prison guards, police officers, right-leaning teachers who exist, even though they're my but these were the people who showed up, the people who were relatively successful in their own lives, modestly successful, but at the same time, people who felt culturally isolated within the country. They were alienated not just from the Democratic Party, but they were also alienated from the party because if you're one of these people, you have no ready access to a senator. If you're a member of the Chamber of Commerce, you can host a lunch and you talk to the up-and-coming state legislator who then becomes a congressman, who then becomes a governor, who then becomes a presidential candidate. If you're a medical doctor or a real estate agent, you have professional associations that can host the state legislator or the congressman or the governor. And so you were heard. Whereas if you don't have these social networks, there's no home turf for you to meet them, which means that you are largely invisible to office holders. And the result is that they only show up these people only exist when somebody can rally them using the mass media because it's not like you can go to the club because these people have no club. And Trump was able to rally them through the mass media, but then you had a Republican political class who barely knew that these people existed or who thought of them as inert matter. In other words, those that you shove, you push them in a direction and they go in the direction. There was no sense that these people had agency and interest and beliefs of their own. And now this guy is rallying them and their natural response to go, well, he's rallying up the heathens. It's not that, oh my God, we've ignored a large segment of the population. How do we talk about them? Rick Perlstein has his book about the 64 presidential election, and he describes liberal journalists writing about Goldwater voters as it was like these people had landed in America on UFOs, voted, and then after went back to UFOs and went into outer space. 
these people were not part of the actual country that liberal journalists understood. And when it comes to the actual Trump voters, I think a lot of Republican politicians think of them exactly those terms. They came down in their UFOs to the Trump rallies and then to vote for Trump. And then they went back in their UFOs, but they left Trump in office. And oh my God, what do we do? They don't think of them as a part of the country that we have to adjust to, we have to represent. And we also have to find the common ground between these voters and the more affluent Republican voters. We have to find the common ground between these voters and swing voters. Hey, even find the common ground between these voters and Democratic voters. Because there is a lot of common ground, I think, between Trump voters and at least a significant fraction of Democratic voters. But they don't think of it in those terms. These people are just an obstacle to their careers. These people are just an obstacle to enacting an agenda that isn't popular. Yeah, this brings us back to another one of the things I always love reading about in your columns, and we'll have to do a podcast on this. There are social classes in America that no longer have good forms of association, or maybe any forms of voluntary association, for common purposes. Of course, this is part of the Charles Murray Putnam thesis of coming apart, bowling alone, of the rise of individualism and the inability of Americans or the unwillingness to bear the costs and the unpleasantnesses of association for common purposes. And we'll have to talk about this because when we talk about oligarchy and the party elite, we don't mean to say that there should be nobody elected or that there should be no chamber of commerce. All these organizations are good, useful, legitimate, voluntary. But they cannot dominate to the exclusion of massive numbers of the electorate. This is a real problem. What organizations could help out? I remember as my conservative friends were turning towards Trump last year, I kept telling them, no, if this were serious, every rally would come with something, a card, an attempt to form a club, any form of organization, not leave these people to dissipate and slowly discover that that aftertaste is a bit bitter. There is some worth in mass rallies and populism. Americans should learn that they're not alone and powerless. But the way to go forward is habits of association, voluntary organization for common purposes. And that, it just doesn't seem obvious how that could happen for so many people in the lower social classes. We should also point out that while this conversation is focused on the problem more elite Republicans, or at least the more affluent, Trump is a con man. If Trump had been serious about a set of policies, if he had been serious about building a national organization that was cause-based rather than person-based, he probably would have done that. But at the end of the day, he's a publicity man. The reason why it succeeded was he was a publicity man who wanted to sell things, the public things they wanted. And he was facing publicity men who were bound and determined to sell the public things the public didn't want. And when it comes to looking in the mirror, I think a lot of the Republican elites, whether it's Ben Sass or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or Jeff Flake, need to look at and say the problem wasn't that we were not sufficiently public relations focused. It's that we thought public relations could do more than it actually could. This is one of the places, again, where I miss Peter Lawler. I think he would have been the first to point out that from Socrates onward, rhetoric can only get you so far. Rhetoric can influence reality, but rhetoric cannot substitute for reality. And what you've had is a party that's trying to substitute rhetoric for reality, whereas Trump, in his completely bananas way, is actually being more realistic a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think that we still need to hold on to the Peter Lawler insight on Trump, that the party needs to stop thinking about Trump in terms of, we can learn about Donald Trump, that he's such a demagogue and such a pernicious bane on the Constitution and the Republic. None of that. And in third, learn from Donald Trump how to talk and how to listen to where the majority electorate is. You cannot take the voting rights of Americans, and you should not want to take away their voting rights. 
they will vote to some extent as they understand their interests, learning from them, not about them, how to manipulate them, but from them, what it is that scares them, what it is that worries them, and where they see a bit of hope, what they think they could live with and might be an improvement. That should be the way. Somebody who'd do better and move from rally to organization would be a future for that part of the electorate. Not somebody who wants to move backward to a situation where you never even mention these people in the third person. That is all true. And I would add that a minimally competent party, even if you can't necessarily meet these people in large groups, you can at least do survey research to learn about public attitudes. You can do in-depth ethnography in order to find out how people organize their own priorities and their own identities. And you have a party that at most pretends to do that. Once again, going back to the autopsy, they did refer to focus groups, but it was always in the same very artificial way, that they'd obviously scoured the data so that the unpopularity of certain party positions would be hidden. And they were obviously looking at the data so that they could reorganize in such a way that it would tell the public what they wanted the public to be told. And if you're going to understand public opinion, you first you have to genuinely listen. You don't necessarily have to agree, but you have to genuinely listen and try to find the common ground between them and try to find the common ground with you. And on some level, the reason for the hustle is Brett Stevens in his New York Times column basically said, if you don't agree with me, get the hell out of the country. And that's not what Paul Ryan says. Paul Ryan's attitude is that, well, if you don't agree with me, I'll repeat the words opportunity and growth and universal country and constitution and mom and apple pie until you agree with me. But under the surface, it's the same basic idea that at the end of the day, you will obey me. Instead of trying to reach common ground and reach common agreement with your fellow citizens, these are ways of trying to dominate your fellow citizens. And it keeps failing, it keeps deserving to fail, but it also makes them destructive spiral where their own failures make them more bitter and more self-righteous and less likely to listen. And so we'll see just how bad this bitterness can get now that there are fire and principal senators retiring unduly soon because of what the party is turning to. Well, this is our first glance at the problems of the Republican Party and the electorate in 2017. And our next podcast will deal more with the questions of association for the electorate and the questions of learning from the electorate in the case of the party institutions. Thanks for listening. The postmodern conservative podcast will arrive in fits and starts in a various cast of characters from now on. Look for us again, and let's talk again soon, Pete. All right, see you around, Titus.